Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, we were last with you two weeks ago, talking about the possibility for a bipartisan infrastructure deal. And a lot has changed in two weeks. Or has it? I mean, seemingly it has. Last week, the president endorsed at least the outlines of a bipartisan agreement on an infrastructure package. That agreement appears, again, I say appears, to have been negotiated by as many as 21 senators from both parties. And assuming that's true, it goes without saying, of course, that 21 is still not 60. 21 is not even 50. So our question this week is the same as it was last time. And that is, is a bipartisan bill on infrastructure possible? I mean, in Washington, it always seems that all things are at least possible, but really how possible? And the answer to this is extremely important in the tax world because you may recall that President Biden has proposed to pay for his infrastructure plan with corporate tax increases. So tax is connected to the fate of infrastructure. Or is it? Another complicated question we will try and answer today. So to answer these questions, we've got our Washington veterans, Carol Coolish and Jennifer Gray with us today. Jennifer, let me start with you with the first question. So, okay, there is a supposed bipartisan deal. Can you just outline in the broadest sense, you know, what is uh, this deal and to what extent it includes taxes? Well, the bill is around $600 billion in new spending on infrastructure, and that includes the traditional roads and bridges. And also a, a bit broader definition it includes um, some broadband and something called resiliency, which is, I think, to help communities deal with flooding and wildfires and that type of thing. So, yeah, again, a little less than $600 billion in new spending. I think the the headline issue for us is that taxes, at least those headline taxes that we've heard a lot about from the Green Book, et cetera, are not in here. Again, this is a bipartisan deal. Um, in order to get the Republicans to buy in on this, a lot of those taxes, most of those taxes were left out. You know, I think one big thing in here that our folks will, will be interested in is um, there is an idea of reducing the IRS tax gap. So this idea of some more funding for the IRS in order to help them with enforcement. That also includes some bond issues, private activity bonds, those type of things that can have a tax component. And the redirecting some unused spending funds to help cover some of these infrastructure items. The other things in here, although I, I'm not sure they stay in here, are this idea to index the gas tax to inflation and then an additional surcharge on electric vehicles. The administration has expressed concerns about that. So my guess is those end up dropping out before the, the bills actually enacted or passed. Okay, so I've got a couple questions for you. Help me out here. So you said, I think, $600 billion of new spending, yet the bill is being reported as, I think, a $1.2 trillion bill, at least in some places. So how do we get from the 600 to the one point two? You know, apparently the 1.2 counts some various spending that had already been in place. And so when you look at new spending, the amount $600 billion. So at least the amount that they're probably looking, hoping to offset, I think we're looking at about $600 billion or so. Okay, so all in, maybe $1.2 trillion of, of directed infrastructure spending. We can talk about how we define infrastructure, but directed infrastructure spending, of which about half of it, uh, I guess, you're saying is new. Got it. Now, the other important thing you said was the corporate tax increases that the president has proposed are not the pay-fors in this. So let me ask you, if you know anybody's listening who is concerned about the corporate tax increases, does that mean they're in the clear for the rest of the year? I definitely do not think so. As you may have heard in the in the news, there's been a number of conversations about how 
a second bill, which would include a lot of social spending and presumably would include various tax increases that the president has proposed, be they on the corporate side or on the individual side. The expectation is that the Democrats want to have a second bill and that would go through the budget reconciliation process, which I, I know folks are familiar with, and that would allow them to pass that bill with only Democratic votes. And the expectation there is because they presumably would not be trying to appeal to a lot of Republicans that they can include at least some of those tax increases in that expected second bill. Got it. So we're not done after this bill that Democrats have expressed their intention to come back and do a second Democratic-only bill via budget reconciliation that would almost certainly include tax increases of some sort and of some magnitude yet to be determined. Did I get that right, then? I think so. I think we're potentially quite away from being finished. And this process is going to be quite complicated, a lot of uh, moving chess pieces. It's going to be very interesting to watch the next few months. It always is. Okay. So, Carol, let me come back to you then. So in this bipartisan deal that the president has seemingly endorsed, correct me if I'm wrong on that, what what do you think is in it for Democrats? Why do you think the president has pursued this so vigorously and and many Democrats have, have come to the table to negotiate this? In terms of what's in it for Democrats, I think they pretty much have to embrace the bipartisan discussions on at least the part of the president's proposals on which there could be agreement, hard infrastructure like transportation, that's important to members of both parties. Keep in mind that moderate Democratic senators like Manchin and Cinema really want to work with Republicans and have expressed reluctance to use reconciliation or to modify or eliminate the filibuster rules to advance legislation on a purely Democratic basis. And without their votes, Democrats can't advance legislation that doesn't have significant Republican support in a 50-50 Senate. So from a political perspective, the president and congressional Democrats pretty much have to allow bipartisan negotiations to play out and have to encourage those efforts. Also, any legislation based on the bipartisan bill is likely to be linked together with another partisan bill that moves through reconciliation. So at the end of the day, the Democrats are probably going to try to get done the same things through this process as they would if they just did one bill on a purely partisan basis. But if they can get Republicans on board for part of it, I think that many Democrats would view that as a big victory. There's moderate Democrats in districts who'd like to be able to say, we work together with Republicans on something that was important to you. We can work together. We're not all about politics. We're all capable of working together on policy. I think for Biden, I think it's very important to him. It seems important to him personally to be able to show that we can do things on a bipartisan basis. I know there's there been quotes of him saying, that's important to show that democracy works in that manner. Politically, it's also a good thing for him to be able to show, yes, I accomplished some stuff working hand in hand with Republicans. So I think that it's good for Democrats to be able to say both politically and for some of them in terms of the matter of their, their beliefs that, yes, we can work together. And who knows, having part of it done on a bipartisan basis might help reduce the amount of revenue needed or make the deficit increase less. But that depends on how big the second bill ultimately might be, taking into account the need to keep both progressive and moderate Democrats on board. So back to the math that we were talking about earlier, you know, let's call it 1.2 trillion, however we get there, but let's just call it that. Originally, the president had talked about on the traditional infrastructure side, you know, there's a whole separate American Families Plan, sort of the human infrastructure side that will presumably go in the second bill. But on the traditional infrastructure, he talked about as much as 2.7. So I think what you're saying Carol, is that just because we've gone from 2.7 to 1.2, 
and this bipartisan bill doesn't mean that we've given up on the other 1.5, if my math is right. They, they could still come back in a second bill and pick up those pieces that they could not negotiate into the bipartisan bill and try and get those enacted through a second infrastructure bill, which would be done by Democrats only via budget reconciliation. Do I have that right? Yeah, and I, I guess the way I look at it is in some way things haven't changed that much because even if you did a purely partisan, just Democratic process, given the narrow margins of control, the 50-50 Senate, the Democrats would have a very tough challenge anyway and would probably have to make their combined, everything that's out there been proposed, they'd probably have to narrow it, make the, the combined bill smaller, make provisions work so that they can get the moderate votes as well as the progressive votes. So I think that even if you did it on a purely democratic basis, the proposals would get moderated somewhat and the bill would get smaller. Now, when you say, okay, we're going to take this two-track approach, I think at the end of the day, you may end up with a combined bill if this succeeds, which is you know, a big issue in its own right. You may still end up with a combined bill that reflects what the Democrats can get politically, what they can get done, because what they don't include in the infrastructure package, they can then say, okay, but now, because again, they're looking at, the Democrats look at this holistically. I think they'd say, well, okay, what we can't get done of that, We'll get down in the second package, but together it's the same place you were to begin with. You got to get the moderates and progressives on board for both bills. So they kind of think of them as one. It's not that much different than if they're putting together one partisan bill. Well, that makes it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense to me, Carol. But it leads to my next question, which is one for you, then Jennifer, because what Carol said makes so much sense. I think it posits a very obvious question. Uh, and I suspect many of you listening are asking yourself this right now. Jennifer, if what Carol has just outlined is correct, then what, what's in this for Republicans then? What's the incentive for Republicans to sign on to this bipartisan deal? If it, indeed Democrats are going to come back and do all the pieces that they couldn't do in the bipartisan deal by themselves. Well, I think that depends on which Republicans you're talking to. And there are certainly some who would probably be more inclined to support this. And their view is, one, it gives them an opportunity to do something bipartisan. And, and two, it gives them an opportunity to vote for infrastructure, which they may support in and of itself. Some of these moderates who are involved in this may be in states where or districts, perhaps, if we see some Republicans in the House sign on, uh, maybe in places where they would like to be seen as as bipartisan. I was speaking with someone on the Hill, and their point was, you know, just because the Democrats might support something you as a Republican don't support doesn't necessarily mean that, therefore, you should vote against something that you do support. That Should there be a link between the two or not in, in the mind of a Republican deciding how to vote for this? Other Republicans absolutely are taking a view that you know, there's really nothing for them in this. Perhaps what they're doing is making things easier for the Democrats to pass that second reconciliation bill. And even if that's not the case, you know, perhaps they have concerns with this first bill in and of itself, be it the size of the spending itself the types of pay-fors that it may or may not have and, you know, potentially the deficit concerns if the bill at the end of the day ends up not being completely offset. Yeah, so that's a good point. Maybe we're overthinking this, you know, I mean, what's in it for Republicans? Well, the infrastructure is what's in it for them, right? Doing a bill on infrastructure and supporting it is in itself a good, arguably, for many. And remember, we only, you know, Democrats really only need to convince 10 Republicans that that's a good thing to get to 60 and to do this under regular order. So maybe that's, you know, I guess another way to look at it, you tell me if you agree with this, Jennifer, is even if you're not happy about the second bill, if you're able to get $1.2 trillion of infrastructure spending completed and paid for without raising any taxes, you've at a minimum mitigated the tax increase by that $1.2 trillion you did negotiate on a bipartisan basis. Is that a fair way to think about it too? 
That's certainly a legitimate way that some may be thinking about it. Again, you know, this idea of just because someone else may support one thing that you don't, does that mean that then you don't support a different thing that you do support? You know, are, are they linked or not? You know, to what extent that makes sense in Republicans' minds to to link them or to not link the two issues or the two bills? Okay, well, uh, that makes sense. So let me come back to you then, Carol, um, because you made such a compelling point why this might be a good deal for Democrats and why they would support the bill. What might make this fail for them then? I mean, are they all, you know, are all Democrats going to come on board or is there still a chance that um, this thing might not, you know, uh, actually happen? Is there a reason why Democrats could potentially walk away from it? I think it could fail. Um, It could fail because, as Jennifer was saying, it might not get Republicans ultimately sufficient number of them might not support it so they could get across a 60 vote threshold and move it without reconciliation in the Senate. But it could also fail because in addition or in the alternative to that, they might have problems getting all the Democrats on board because, you know, you look at where things are right now. Some of the more progressive Democrats are very unhappy that their priorities aren't included in this bill. They want something more robust. They want a more expansive definition of infrastructure. They don't want to let just a handful of people on the Senate side decide basically what should be in what Congress puts forth before the president. So there is this possibility, and I do think it's a difficult, it's a difficult process. But when I think about it sort of from a big picture perspective, that's the same issue the Democrats have if they try to put together a bill on their own anyway. You still have to see whether, you know, at the end of the day, does Cinema, for example, Senator Cinema, would she support the second reconciliation bill? Something like that. If you don't get all the Senate Democrats on board, you can't move this second bill through reconciliation, but you still have that issue if they put together one big bill that's purely partisan, you still have to get Cinema and Manchin to agree to move it through reconciliation. You still have to get every single Senate Democrat to vote for either a big reconciliation bill or a reconciliation bill that rides along with a bipartisan bill. So the political issues are still the same, but I do think there's a decent chance this could collapse because I'm not sure they're going to get 60 votes in the Senate for it, given what Jennifer was saying, there's some Republicans who are going to have concerns with it. And it is a difficult process for Democrats, but I think Democrats are motivated no matter what to try to figure out how to get something done, whether it's purely partisan or half partisan, half bipartisan. And I don't mean half by equal, but part partisan, part bipartisan. Right. Well, you know, that raises an interesting question. So if you do end up in the situation, the Senate, where there are 10 Republican votes, but there are not 50 Democratic votes, does that have an impact on the point of view of some of the the Democratic moderates who negotiated this bill? If they feel like it's perhaps the Democrats that killed the bill, does that influence at all their willingness to work on a reconciliation package in the future? I don't know that Schumer will let it get to a vote until he knows what the vote count is, though. <laughs> right, right. That's. I mean, it's a really interesting question, Jennifer. But one would think that both the White House would be working really, really hard to keep fifty, all fifty, on board, and that we wouldn't actually get the vote unless Majority Leader Schumer was certain that he could get there. But who knows? I mean, it, right, it would be a really interesting dynamic. But you, the point I think you're going to make, Jennifer, is you don't even need to get to that point because... That's exactly. You don't need Schumer to physically have a vote on the floor. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, but that's no in advance. You know, yep. if, if you can't get the vote, the, the folks know why you can't get the vote. Um, yep. Right. Carol, let me ask yep. another question. Is there one way that this deal could fail 
for Democrats. You know, there's been some talk that maybe the Republican strategy is here, and maybe this is, again, thinking too hard, but if they do this bipartisan bill, it'll take all the wind out of the sails, and they'll never come back and do the second Democratic-only bill. Do you think that's a real concern that some progressives might have, or any Democrat might have, saying, hey, we, we can't do this one because we'll never come back and do the second one, which has the real priorities? Yeah, I think that's a very real concern. I think that's why Pelosi has said they're linked. And Schumer, I think, has acknowledged that as well, that they've said one is not going to move without the other, because absolutely, I think the progressives and other Democrats are very concerned that if you let the the bipartisan framework, assuming that you could get 60 votes for it in the Senate, if you let that one move forward, if you let that train leave the station, that this bill might never happen. Maybe Manchin and Cinema don't agree to do another bill through reconciliation. Maybe the politics don't work right. The, the Democrats can't figure out how to put that second bill together. So absolutely, the, the, there's a very big concern on behalf of some Democrats that if the uh, bipartisan bill framework were to move forward first, that they may be left by the, the roadside. And that's why Pelosi and Schumer have said, no, we're linked, which leads to Jennifer's point that then some Republicans say, hey, well, if they're linked, we got to think about how we view that. Do we support infrastructure because it's a good thing to politically support? Or do we not want to support this, given that we know they're, they're going to be, be linked in terms of how they move forward? Boy, the, the process on this is going, it's fascinating to us and it's going to be really complex as, as to how you sequence these bills to make everybody happy. And it's kind of a brain melting exercise that we've talked about. It's probably worthy of its own episode. So stay tuned. We'll do an episode at some point uh, if this thing plays out of how they're going to have to sequence these to make sure that they're linked while not being linked. Okay. So Jennifer, la- last question for you. So Carol alluded to this, that, you know, what happens if we don't produce the 10 Republican votes. So question for you is then, what is it? What could make Republicans walk away from this deal so that we don't get 10 or five or maybe any Republicans on board in the end? Well, I think a lot of things, you know, at this point, this is a, you know, two page outline, at least what's been released publicly. So you know, this is not legislative language, the devil's in the details. These are just very high level numbers of, of categories of how much uh, of that 579 billion will be allotted to various categories. And at some point, an actual bill has to be produced. That bill, one, has to have the details of more information about how this money will be spent. And two, um, you know, CBO and the joint tax are going to have to score these pay-fors at some point. And, you know, without getting into a lot of detail, there certainly is some question about how real some of these pay-fors are and how the two uh, committees, CBO and, and joint tax, would actually score those. And with the scores really come out the way it has been um, thought of when this was put together or not. Well, let me ask you both one lightning round question. So just a quick answer, and it's hard because this is a hard question, but I started off with the question like, gee, it seems like a lot has changed, but maybe it hasn't since we last recorded. So quickly, what do you think? Do you think the world has changed dramatically in, since we recorded our last episode when we talked about the prospects for a bipartisan deal? Or is it more or less mostly still kind of the same dynamic? Go ahead, uh, Jennifer, you go first. I think not as much as we had originally thought. I think, you know, once this idea of linking the two bills came out, then I think this idea that the whole dynamic had changed, I think, um, you know, was less than might have been, might have been first thought when this um, idea first came out and was first proposed and announced. Okay. Sounds right to me. Carol, what about you? <laughs> I think that when we previously talked about it, that the same tensions are there that we highlighted between a bill that that you can get bipartisan support for isn't going to satisfy all the Democratic priorities. So I think those tensions are all still there. But I think at the end of the day, you know, maybe the process has changed 
a little bit. I will admit I didn't think we would get to the point where the president would take this framework that's just agreed to by this limited number of more moderate senators and then say, okay, I'm going to try to sell this now to everybody. And then that forces the Democrats to unite behind him and try to find a way around it. So I was a little surprised that we came to that point in the process. But at the end of the day, I think now the process may have changed a little bit. But I think that at the end of the day, the, the, that, you know, from a tax perspective, you're still looking at the same general dynamic, which is the tax piece will be in a partisan bill, which would be moved through reconciliation. And the same difficulties are there, whether you do two-track or one-track approach as to getting the, the moderates and the more progressive Democrats on board. So I think, you know, and as I said, taxes are still in play. I think that the amount of revenue that's needed might not be that much different under this type of approach than it was under the other. But I think that at the end of the day, from a really big picture perspective, not that much changes as a result of it in terms of what the expectations are for tax. It's just our procedure has gotten really, really complicated. And I think that's the message we've tried to deliver over the last couple of weeks, which is, yes, this is important. You need to pay attention to it. But it's easy to overstate the importance of what has happened over the last couple of weeks. That largely, largely the same pressures, pressure points are still there and the process and the same outcome. We may still get to that, but it's definitely worth watching. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm sure this is not the last we've heard on this topic. Let me conclude by just taking this conversation wildly off course for a second, but bear with me. I will do my best to bring it back to the topic at hand. I wanted to talk about Schrodinger's cat. Do you know about Schrodinger's cat? Erwin Schrodinger was a physicist and a contemporary of Albert Einstein, and he developed the thought experiment to make a point about the field of quantum mechanics. See, I told you this was going wildly off course. But you see, the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment has been co-opted by so many different fields to mean so many different things, including politics, that in many ways it's lost its mooring to quantum mechanics. And I think in some ways it's relevant to our discussion today. So the experiment. Schrodinger imagines a cat is placed inside a box. From the outside, you can't see in the box. So there's no way to know what's happening inside. Also, placed inside the box is a device that may release poison that would kill the cat. And at a set time, there's exactly a 50% chance this device will release the poison. And there's also a 50% chance that it will not. Now, before you call PETA on the late Dr. Schrodinger, let me emphasize this is merely a thought experiment. Okay, so here's Schrodinger's point. Because we can't see inside the box, we have no idea what's happening. And at that appointed time, all we know is there is an equal chance the cat is either alive or dead. So in a sense, the cat is both dead and alive at the same time. It is only the moment when we open the box that it becomes 100% dead or alive. And Schrodinger is trying to point out the absurdity of two opposite things being true at the same time. How can the cat be both dead and alive? Okay, now back to our topic for today, I hope. You see, our infrastructure bill, that's Schrodinger's cat. Half of Washington insiders you talk to are confident the bipartisan deal is going to happen. The other half say it has no chance, and it's simply theater. And so for now, the bipartisan bill is like that cat, both alive and dead at the same time. That's because you can't see inside the box. The box, of course, is the ongoing legislative negotiation, and that's going to take time to play out. At some point, the box will open, and we can look inside to see if the cat is alive or not. But we can't yet. And so Schrodinger's point was to illustrate the absurdity of something being both alive and dead at the same time. 
Fair enough. But Schrodinger's point, maybe, is not quite so absurd here in Washington. With that, I hope I've steered us back on course. And thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. And please don't forget to submit your comments, your questions, and your suggestions to our email inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon. 